we are going to be talking about the clarity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. And the sufficiency. These are not difficult terms for us to get our minds around. We think about clarity. We're thinking about just that, clarity. You know, can you expect to sit down and read the Bible and understand it? Often, you know, I hear people say or imply that they just can't understand the Bible. You know, this is too hard. Now listen, we all have places in the Bible where you read and read and reread and it's very difficult to sort it out. But that's not the general rule. For scripture okay most the majority of scripture you can read and comprehend it and I found that even in some of those hard places that by reading and struggling with it a little bit you can come to the place that you understand you, you get more insight into it and know what's being said there even though it may not rush at you at first blush you know it's not reading you know some kind of piece of prose in our culture today and it immediately jumps off the page and you understand it but if you dig a little bit or you're willing to read it carefully sometimes slowing down and reading it out loud and making sure you observe all the punctuation you know the commas and things like that where you pause making sure you've got it in that kind of uh, context right then then it starts to come together and make more sense so clarity is that scripture is written so we can understand it and people that always complain and use that as an excuse not to read the Bible they're actually telling you something else about themselves right that maybe they don't understand it because you know they're not willing to hear and understand what it says so the Bible is does possess clarity it affirms this itself the Bible affirms this um, over in Deuteronomy, we're told, you know, when Scott was here, he, he preached this, taught this uh, from the children's ministry perspective that we are to teach and train and talk to our children about God's Word in every aspect of life as we go through life, you know, from lying down at night to sitting up and walking and doing all the things we do in the day. The picture there is to continue to teach the scripture, teach the word to your children. So clearly, if scripture doesn't possess this clarity, then how would God expect us to open it up and, and use it with our children, you know, from the earliest of ages? Psalm 19.7 says that the simple can understand it. Psalm 119.130 says that God's word gives light. That it offers light. Light's the opposite of dim, dark, camouflaged, unable to see, right? You know, you turn on the light, you expose things. And so the Word of God itself claims to be light for life. Jesus never faulted Scripture when people didn't understand it. He always placed the responsibility upon the person. For instance... Matthew 12 and 3, in fact, if you want to turn there, Matthew 12, 
because this is a pretty standard engagement from him. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, these guys are experts, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the, the myth is, well, it's probably more than a myth. I'm not sure if it was Josephus that said this, but one of the historians of the day said that the scrolls that were rolled up that had the Word of God written on them, that a Pharisee so knew the Word of God that if you ran a pen through that scroll as it was rolled up, he could tell you what words it passed through without unrolling it. But that's how well they knew it. Okay? This is what he said in verse 3 to them when they're, they're getting on his case. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Have you not read? Do you not understand? You know, he puts it, the onus upon them, not upon the Word of God. The Word of God is clear. The Word of God brings clarity. It's not confusing. You'll find it again in verse 5. He says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? He says in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 29, something similar to this. They were asking the question about the wives, you know, whose all these brothers died. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus answered, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's pretty blunt. You know, the first one was a little bit tactful. Have you not read this time? He said, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. The word of God. <clears throat> you don't know the scriptures. What you're talking about is not true. So the Bible affirms its own clarity. Secondly, moral and spiritual qualities impact understanding. Moral and spiritual qualities What do you think that means? Impact our ability to understand. Certainly the Holy Spirit reveals truth from Scripture as we read it. Right. You know, if you're not a believer, you don't have the conviction. You don't you don't have the lenses on the eyes, you have a veil that you're trying to look through. You know, it's like uh, my front door. Uh, you know, my dog's a nosy. He's a nosy busybody. He, he thinks it's his job to know everything going on in the neighborhood. <laughs> Every time a leaf falls, he thinks it's his job to know what it is and to report it to everybody in the community. Okay? So he's always running to the door to the windows and checking everything out. Well, sometimes I have to walk over because he pitches such a fit, I think, okay, something's going on outside my door. And, and I walk over, and my door's probably a lot like some of yours, there's a glass in the door, but you can't see through it clearly. You know, it's got all, it's, it's just, it's, you know, it's like Coca-Cola bottles of different thicknesses making this thing up. So there are a couple of places where, you know, if you get just the right angle, you can see over here clearly and this way clearly. But if you just stand there, you think you see something, but it may be over here. You know, it's just weird. And, and that's what happens when you take somebody who doesn't have the Spirit of God within them. They're not a believer. They look at the Word of God and they're looking at it as though they're reading a novel or they're reading a newspaper. That's the only sense that they bring to it. They don't bring a spiritual sense to it. They can't see it as God. God 
has a veil over their eyes. Jesus said he used parables for that very reason, so that the lost people could not understand. He didn't want them to understand. Some of the apocalyptic literature, like in Revelation, was written that way intentionally because Christians were being persecuted and they were passing these things around to believers and sharing this, this word of hope from God and they were written in this apocalyptic language, symbolic language, so that the authorities wouldn't be able to recognize it for the most part. But the Christians knew what it was saying because God gave them understanding. Moral and spiritual qualities. Also, I would go so far as to say, if you have sin, even if you're a believer and you are living a, these things are kind of, you know, they're kind of a contradiction. They don't work together. But even if you're, you're deep into sin, habits of sin, it will impact what you can see in Scripture because you've hardened, you know, you've hardened your mind, you've hardened your heart toward God uh, in certain ways. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man cannot understand the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 16 de des uh, describes this veil over the Israelites' face. And until God removes it, they can't, they can't see, they can't understand the truth. And it's true for any unbeliever. The Word of God is written clearly, but only those willing to receive its teachings, honestly, intellectually honestly, are the ones that can understand it. What is the meaning, then, of clarity of Scripture? It means the Bible was written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's helps and being willing to follow it. I'll say it again. It means the Bible was written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's helps and being willing to follow it. So why do people misunderstand Scripture. Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, hermeneutics. Or hermeneutics is one of them. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say that's that. what he was going to say. But Just want to say it. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means to interpret. There are certain. There are certain. Uh, things, skills, processes, disciplines that need to be employed in order to understand Scripture correctly. All right? Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to take and add to confusion to this clarity thing. But these are pretty, they're things that anybody can do within reason, okay? For instance, the first principle, I'm going to tell you there are three basic principles that you use. First of all, is the literal principle that you take scripture literally unless it clearly indicates it shouldn't be taken literally. Okay? Revelation's not necessarily taken literally. All right? But everywhere else it is. Now, some people will say, well, what about Jonah? Jonah and the fish. Nobody takes that literally. That had to be a parable, right? Well, Jesus quoted it as though he quoted uh, Jonah referred to Jonah, treated it as though it was literal. So there's one that you've got that, okay, you can make the case that maybe it's a, a parable, maybe it's a story designed to teach the truth, but when Jesus uses it in a literal sense, then we have to say, hmm, scrap that first impression. Jesus has given validity to it as a true story, as a historical story. Make sense? 
Um, the, um, the rich man and Lazarus and the teaching on hell that Jesus does in, in Luke chapter 16. People will say, well, I don't believe in hell because that was just a parable anyway. Well, but the balance of Scripture talks about God's judgment and talks about hell. And Revelation even describes the same thing. So you start stringing the pearls on, on this line and you start finding out that there's a lot more evidence that supports taking it literally, you know, or that there's literal truth in it as opposed to saying, well, that's just some sort of metaphor or something for... Well, that was unusual because he uses a man's name. That's true. Man's name in a parable. It, it does create a little bit of controversy because he does use a name. But Lazarus was a pretty common name too, but uh, you know, who knows? Maybe his friend Lazarus was there. I don't know. <laughs> literally. So take it literally unless it's blatantly symbolic. All right? Secondly, context. Context, context, context. You know when you're in sales, you know, if you're selling real estate, what, what are the three rules for being productive selling real estate? Location, location, location. When it comes to understanding scripture, it's context, context, context. Context is so important. Context in the whole storyline of the scripture. I mean, 66 books, yes, over 1,500 years, one meta-narrative that's running from the beginning to the end. One story of what God is doing to reclaim, to redeem, to restore what he has made. Okay? And so those 66 books, yes, they are individual books, but they're all working for the same purpose. Okay? Context. So there's a large whole Bible context. There's a book context. Sometimes there's a group of book context. You know, like you have five books that make up what we call the Pentateuch or the law. The law of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you've got historical books, you know, whether it be Joshua, the first and second kings, first and second Samuel, Ruth, Judges. Those books have historical focus. They tell us a lot about the, the goings-on in Israel uh, and what God was doing in them. So all of these things provide a foundation to help us understand what God said when he said it and what he meant when he said and we have to understand that first before we can know what he's saying today the gospels same thing and, and also understanding that each of the four gospels bring a different perspective on telling the story of Jesus and each of those perspectives like Matthew for instance is there's no doubt about it that his primary audience as he's thinking is the Jew that he's presenting Jesus as king king of the Jews Luke is presenting him uh, as son of man uh, his humanity uh, Mark you know brings this perspective a Roman perspective you know Jesus is the, the servant the suffering servant who comes John is very theological you know he's uh, that's why we tell people that uh, are unbelievers if you're going to start somewhere go to the Bible and read read the gospel of John and let God speak to you because he will introduce to you who, who Christ is, who Jesus is. So context is very important. And then within the verses, 
each verse, you know, what, what happened right before this verse, what happens right after it determines. You heard me Sunday uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, there at the very beginning, the first word out of the gate was what? You remember? Therefore. therefore. And that, you always have to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? It always points back to what just happened, right? Because of what I just told you, now I'm going to tell you this. That's context, okay? That's context. Exegesis. And that's not a second Jesus. That's not the Mormon Jesus. That's exegesis. All right. <laughs> you do hermeneutics. <laughs> yeah, Herman, Herman is one of my favorites. Exegesis is the process of unpacking the meaning of a biblical text, of explaining it. You know, we talk about expository preaching here, but actually what we strive to do is do faithful exegesis of the passage each week. You know, we seek, I seek to discover what does God mean when he says what he says in this passage. Now my job is to help unpack that so that you understand it and that we understand it together, and then we figure out how does that apply to us here today in our context. What's God telling us? What's he speaking to us? This is why it's so, um, you know, we, we hear this commentary in lots of uh, church situations, church context today, where uh, people are saying, well, you know, the Bible's just not relevant anymore. We need to be more relevant to people. Listen, the people that are worried about the Bible being relevant don't understand how to do hermeneutics and exegesis, you know? And, and what they're saying is that I am a lazy theologian. I'm not willing to get in and do that. Because this is not easy stuff to do. It, it requires work. It's tedious sometimes. And sometimes you can invest. I can spend three or four days on a particularly difficult uh, passage of Scripture or it's difficult for me. And maybe because there's things in my life that aren't where they need to be. And sometimes God just intentionally leaves you to struggle with things to show you that he's still in charge. And, and then later opens up the windows and it all comes together. You know, but, but we have to be willing to wrestle and struggle with those things in order to hear from God. That's just the way that he works. If he just dumped it all out uh, to us immediately, it wouldn't have the same impact sometimes that it does when he uh, withholds it from us. Practical encouragement from this doctrine. Practical encouragement from this doctrine. It tells us that where there are areas of doctrinal or theological or ethical disagreement, disagreement, for example, over baptism or predestination or church governor, government, there are only two possible causes for these disagreements. One, it may be we are seeking to make affirmations where Scripture itself is silent. My wife and I had this discussion last weekend. Y'all were at Sunday school. You were talking about the New Jerusalem coming down, right? And so she was asking me questions about heaven and, you know, what, what's going to be this and going to be that. And I think I kind of got her a little bit frustrated because I said, we only know what we know. And she said, what do you mean by that? Why do you keep saying that? And I said, because what I'm saying is that we can only know what the Bible tells us. What we do a lot of times, especially when it comes to heaven, is we speculate a lot. We speculate a lot. But we can only know what we know. We can only know what God wants us to know, what he's told us and wants us to know. 
And the other thing, we have to be able to discern between, okay, where am I speculating? Where have I, where did I get this? I think I believe this, but where did that come from? Is that something I learned years ago in Sunday school from maybe an ill-informed teacher or from a lazy theologian or pastor? Or have I read it somewhere else and now I'm imposing it upon the scripture? These are questions we need to ask. I need to be looking and saying, okay, is this what the scripture says? And is this where it says it? You know, I didn't give you the other third one. To scripture interprets scripture. Sorry about that. That just, remind, that just prompted me, reminded me. It's the spirit of God working, wasn't it? Literally, you've got to be literal. Unless it's obviously not literal. Context, context, con context. And then the Bible's the best interpreter of the Bible. The Bible will shine light on itself. All right? Exegesis, what we're talking about here, and the practical encouragement from this doctrine of clarity. It may be we're seeking to make affirmations where Scripture itself is silent. Secondly, it is possible that we have made mistakes in our interpretation of Scripture due to personal opinions, unhelpful teaching influences, sin, pride, selfishness, etc., there are no grounds for blaming Scripture for lack of clarity. It's always on us. If our understanding is incorrect or at odds with some other part of Scripture, usually it's somewhere faulty in the way that we've come to an understanding. And so that's why it's always good to go back. And I think I mentioned this last week. I have so many conversations and lately about these kind of things that I can't keep them all straight. But my theology... My systematic theology, my understanding of Scripture has modified through the years. And the greatest modifier for me was when, you know, from when I went from being uh, a Sunday school teacher to where I started preaching. And so when I started preaching, I was committed to doing expositional preaching, verse by verse, exegesis of the passage. And what happened was there was a framework of things that I believed. I got them from the church I grew up in. I got them from well-intended people in the church, you know, that, that throw out Christian platitudes like God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. In fact, it's contrary to God's dealings with us. God helps those who can't help themselves, which is us. But those kind of things form what we think we believe. Well, when I start preaching verse by verse through the Bible, what happens is that I start finding out that what this is saying here as I'm studying it doesn't match what I think over here about this passage. And so then you have to start wrestling with that and you have to start figuring out because God is not a God of confusion. He doesn't contradict himself. And as you begin to do that and pull those things together trying to lace up the shoe, sometimes you got to pull the laces back out and, and get them back in the right holes, right? And that's what happens. And as you do that, then you go, oh... So that's what he meant when he said that. And that makes it fit over here. Well, I can't believe what I said I believe over here anymore because it causes this doctrine to be askew. You know, trying to make it fit what I think I believe. So you have to be willing to unravel that and redo it in your own heart and mind. Let God put it back in place. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. Right? All of us are, actually. It's a hard thing. When, until you get to the point where... Now, I'm not saying that we've got to be... That that ought to always be happening. You know, you want to get them right. You want to get them right. 
And if you're always doing that and changing what you believe, then you're the man over in Ephesians 4 that hasn't matured yet and is being tossed to and fro by the external changes coming to bear. But when they're based upon Scripture, then they begin to tighten up. You know, the, the cement begins to harden and you, can, you have a solid foundation and it's not going to be tossed back and forth. Sure. Yes? I think one of some things I struggle with a little bit in clarity is the uh, the cultural uh, the culture of the Bible, the first century Christian, and the culture and the language of that day when written in the Scripture may mean something totally different than how we would express it today, and and vice versa. So that's well, what I think makes it hard sometimes because I'll read some commentaries and they'll say, oh well, back in those days this meant that. Yeah, you got to be improve or disprove. You that. you got to be very careful there because there's a lot of that goes on that causes you to question things, and uh, you can overthink that stuff a lot. So we have to be careful. You know, for instance, uh, we shouldn't have a governing structure today, or the offices of the church should not be just men in the church, but should be women because we live in a different culture today. And Paul was a you know, misogynist, he was, he was, uh, uh, that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, Christianity was on the cutting edge. Feminists would have loved Christianity in the day. You got to think, if you want to think culturally, think about Islam today and, and how their attitudes toward women. The culture was like that. Jesus threw that out with the bathwater when he's sitting at the Samaritan well with the woman who had five husbands and was living with a man who's not and talking to him. That's a picture of Christianity that was ahead of the game on those kind of things. Not, you know, we're not falling into that cultural thing today. So a lot of people use that to try to create doubt, causing us to, we want to shift it to today's culture. And that's why it's important. Okay, go back, understand what God said when he said it. And a lot of those cultural things may not be as quite as out of whack as we we think. They might not be as foreign to us as we think. And and so sometimes, but not all the time. So that's a favorite liberal ploy, you know, to, to kind of bolster their arguments for wanting to define it according to the culture today. Okay. Um, and you, unless you get in a lot of specifics, we couldn't really iron all of that out, but we could. All right? All right. The role of scholars. Are scholars helpful or needed? Absolutely. Scholars are helpful. Language study, cultural studies, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that can help you, to your point, to get into understanding more about the culture. There's a guy, I think, I want to say his name's Kenneth Bailey, that's written a couple of books on uh, New Testament culture. Uh, the days, you know, how uh, uh, the day of Paul and what the culture was like, uh, the day of Jesus and what was culture like. I think it's Kenneth Bailey. Um, some of the historians of the day, like Josephus, um, you know, reading those guys can can help affirm some of those things too. And and most of the uh, like your Sunday school lesson material is going to be pretty good about sorting some of those things out too if they're relevant, you know, for conversation. I think one of the things talking about when Paul, you know, you know, fell from, you know, as he was on his way to Damascus, and I said, yeah, he fell off his horse, and, and my wife said, he never fell off a horse, that's not in the Bible, I said, what do you 
it's not in the Bible. I know it's in the Bible, but it's not. So I don't know why, because I've heard more people say Could have been a horse, could have been a camel. It could have been anything. Yeah. But it's just interesting how, yeah. yeah. He fell, we know that. He fell, right. Yeah. But, but we, and that's what I mean by we only know what we know. Right. But sometimes when you're reading scripture, you think you see something that maybe is not there. And so you go back and read it more carefully and you discover, well, it never was there. It never was there. Don't you think, too, a lot of times people, the misunderstanding comes from lack of faith? Yeah, I mean, but that's, that's what the enemy works diligently to do, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, what was, what was he doing there? He was casting doubt on the word of God, you know. Has God said you shall not eat from the trees of this garden? No, that's not what God said. Well, surely God wants you to eat from all of this. You know, you're not going to die. What God's told you, he's trying to keep you from becoming like him. Taking half-truth and, and casting doubt. That's what he was doing. And that's a model all the way through. And that's important when we think about context is being able to understand the message is the same running through all scripture. It hasn't changed. Okay? It hasn't changed. There may be some elements there that we are a little bit unfamiliar to us, you know? For instance, shepherd. We do anybody know a shepherd today? I mean a real live, you know, sheep herder? Goat herder? Anybody? If we were in a gathering of this size in in Jesus' day, there might have been, you know, nobody here that didn't know a shepherd, sheep herder. Some of them may have employed sheep herders, sheep herders. That's the kind of cultural thing that's shifted. So we might have to work a little bit to know, okay, what, what kind of guy was a shepherd? You know, what did he do? I mean, what, how, how, what was his character and things of that nature? Which does bring some layers of understanding then to when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. You know, Luke's gonna be preaching on that in a couple of weeks, so I got you primed up for that, right? <laughs> good shepherd. John 10. So scholars are helpful, needful. They're, they are fallible. They're human vessels. They're not, uh, they're not perfect. They're not the Holy Spirit, and they're not inspired. Okay? They may be inspired by, as in motivated, but they're not inspired divinely speaking. They can offer help in language nuances. They can help explore new ideas and thoughts about texts and their meanings. But there is wisdom in a plethora of sources, okay? When you, if, you know, when I'm studying a passage of Scripture, if I go to the commentaries, I'll never look at just one. I'm going to look at six or eight or ten that I know are reliable. And so I start comparing those guys. There's wisdom in those guys, and especially the older guys or the texts that have been around a long time that are still standing, that have been found to be trustworthy. You know, that they've done their work and it's been good, solid uh, work and in investigation and communication. They can supplement by making connections to church history, various cultures, etc. Uh, they can defend the teachings of the Bible against other scholars who attack. So they're very helpful, but Scripture interprets Scripture primarily. Remember that. Scripture is always our final authority. All right, necessity of Scripture. <clears throat> Necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. For knowledge of the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, for, for certain knowledge of God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. Does that make sense? Uh, Paul writing to the Romans tells us over there in the first chapter that 
there's enough in creation to tell us that there is a God, a creator God, uh, a supreme being, but there is no gospel in nature. Romans 10. Take your Bibles and turn there. Romans 10. Say, so you're making this up. No, we know what we know. We know what we know. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what has been heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Special revelation. This is special revelation, remember? We talked about that. God has specifically revealed what he wants us to know about himself. And in here he has given us the the pathway to redemption. How Christ has, has fulfilled the law, how Christ has gone as our substitutionary atonement, and how we can be saved by believing on Him, trusting in Him. Specific. It's specific. You can go out and look at the stars and see the arrangement of the stars and the sun, the moon, and all these heavenlies, and just look at life, look at the human body, as we talked about uh, a week or two ago about how it's constructed go there had to be somebody put this together it didn't just happen there's no way that's that's not intellectually uh, honest to say that it just happened it doesn't you know if if you can go back a billion years and say there was nothing there at all then there still has to be nothing today by definition right nothing doesn't create nothing there had to be something that created Someone who created, and that someone is God. So you can look at that and say, there is a creator, there's a maker, there is, a, there is someone that's in charge of all this, but until I have special revelation, I don't know how I can know him. I don't know how I can access him. I don't know how I can approach him. And scripture, special revelation gives us that. So there is a necessity of Scripture. The Bible is necessary for knowledge of the Gospel. The Bible is necessary for maintain, maintaining spiritual life. 2 Timothy 3. You know, we're going to wear this text out. But it is important. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is necessary for retraining. You know, it is the water of washing of regeneration. This is what makes us into what God wants us to be. You, How long are you going to live if you don't take food into your body? Roughly. Three weeks, a month, six weeks. I mean, you go on a hunger strike. If you don't eat, a, now you're not going to go as long if you don't take water in. But if you don't take food in, 
Yeah, it's probably longer than that, right? But but there is a there is a limit that you have to take it in in order for your body to function, in order for the the chemical makeup, you know, the electrolytes and everything to help your mind function. If you've ever been severely dehydrated, you understand, you know, once you get dehydrated and your your electrolytes get out of balance, you can't even think. You know, you can't remember your name. You don't know what day it is or what time it is. You don't know what's going on. You're as helpless as a little infant baby in some of those cases. So you have to have food in order to grow, to thrive, to grow stronger, to be useful. And the same thing's true spiritually. And this is it for us. This is our food. This is what makes us and gives us life, animates us day by day. So for the Christian to take his Bible and set it up on the shelf somewhere and ignore it is just ludicrous, right? I mean, there's nothing feeding your spirit. And if you're not feeding your spirit, the only thing that could be feeding your spirit is a carnal culture. You know, that we think's feeding us when it's really not. It's really starving us to death. All right. I've got to move quicker, 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 quicker. The Bible is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. The Bible is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.29. Let's see what that says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. Psalm 1.1 1, 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. To know the will of God, to grow in all things godly, is to feast upon the word of God. The Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. We've already touched on that, Romans 1. Is a great place to go there. Psalm 19.1 will do the same thing. Um, general revelation does not make the way of salvation known to people, though. Okay? Any questions about that? Necessity of Scripture? Let's talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. Scripture alone is where we search for God's words to us, His communicated to us. I'll refer you to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 again. Sufficiency. The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. What does it mean when something is sufficient? It's all you need. It's all you need for being in fellowship with God for knowing the plans and desires that God has for you. Now, we do not, I say we, I'm, I'm including all of y'all, but I'm speaking for myself primarily. I know I can't speak for you. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that you can sit out somewhere under an elm tree and get new revelation from God tomorrow. That this is what God has given us. He says don't add to it, don't take away from it. This is the message I'm sending you. Well, but, you know, it's just not enough. I need more. No, it's sufficient. It's sufficient for everything that you need. 
What you're saying is that you're not content with what God says you should be content with. That's what we're saying. So we're, we're actually passing judgment on God when we say it's not sufficient. You haven't told us what we need to know. I need to know more. God says, no, you, you, you know everything you need to know. I've given you everything you need to know. I've given you everything. I've answered every question you need to be answered. Well, God, I want to know this. I'm not going to tell you that. Might, someday you might know on the other side of eternity, but I'm not even making any promises about that. You know what you need to know now. And you know what you know, right? We can find all that God has said on particular topics and we can find answers to our questions. The amount of scripture given was sufficient at each stage of redemptive history. In these last days, Hebrews says, God has spoken to us through his son. He spoke to us through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. But if you go back to the day of Abraham, you go back to the day of Jacob, the day of Joseph, you say, well, those guys, they didn't, Jesus hadn't arrived. There was no incarnation at that time. Did they have enough? Was it sufficient? Yes, it was. I mean, God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to go to this land. And Abraham says he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? That's justification, isn't it? Abraham said, I believe you. I trust you. God said, I'm imputing to you righteousness. You are justified in my eyes because you believe me. Every stage of redemptive history has had sufficient revelation to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish. Practical applications of the sufficiency of Scripture uh, provide us an encouragement to search the Bible for answers, offer us a warning not to add to Scripture, a warning not to count any other guidance from God equal to Scripture, not to count any other guidance from God equal to Scripture. What does that mean? That means... You've been, if you've boned up on Henry Blackaby experiencing God and Blackaby says you can know the will of God through prayer, through the church, through circumstances, through the word of God and there are five of them on their sixth. Here's the problem. And when I taught it, I always clarified this because that can become, it can encourage you toward a life of mysticism. You know, that, oh, I got this warm feeling. You know, God spoke to me. Or, you know, I was really trying to decide if I should go to work or I should go swimming today. And I looked up and this water truck was in front of me. So I knew I needed to go swimming. God was affirming. You know, listen, that's a dangerous game to be playing. The enemy can do those things too, you know. He, he, can, he can make that, that staff turn into a cobra too. So, how do we know then? How do we know what we need to know? The Word of God is always our final authority. God may impress upon you. God may, someone may speak to you, you know, and say, you know, something that moves you and you say, you know, I really think I'm supposed to do this because I think God sent this messenger to me. Fine, I don't have a problem with that. But you better confirm it and validate it through the Word of God. That's your final authority. If you don't, you're going to drive yourself crazy because circumstances change and the enemy will start messing with your mind, playing you like a cheap piano. Right? 
He will send th- he'll send he'll have you popping up just like popcorn all over the place because he he does that's what he does. The word of God he can't use the word of God that way. You know he tried to do it with Jesus and it didn't work right. But he'll use circumstances because you don't have a solid foundation there. All right. Uh, a warning not to count any other guidance. A warning not to add more sins or requirements to those named in Scripture and an encouragement to be content with Scripture. All right? Hey! Completed that. Doctrine of God. At least we can get started, okay? A couple minutes to get started. We can say we're making progress. Thinking about the character of God, this is chapter 4 in your textbook, if you are following along on that or reading along in it. And we're talking and thinking about the character of God doctrine of God. What do we believe about God? And when you start talking about the doctrine of God, you're talking about theology proper. Study of God proper. Think carefully. We want to think carefully about the character of God as we discover it in His revelation. Again, not speculating, not assuming, not attributing things to him that are not written in scripture and by the same token giving him due for everything that is in scripture okay now I'm going to pick on one that's a lightning rod and we're going to talk about it in a few weeks in here but uh, we were talking about it over dinner tonight in Baptist circles predestination election I mean, talking about making people nervous, when you start bringing it up, it, it, it makes people nervous, it makes people angry. And, and I don't get that, I don't understand that, because the Bible's filled with it, you know? In fact, your greatest assurance of salvation has right smack dab in the middle of it, predestination. You know, in Romans chapter 8, we like Romans eight twenty eight, where it says, for God... For all things work together for good for, the, for those that love God and are called according to His purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Romans 8, 29 and 30 talks about, gives your golden chain of salvation there. And it says that God determined, He determined, you know, He chose who was going to be His family from eternity before it, this all ever even started. And what He has chosen, He predetermined to make it work out, that it was going to work out. And that he is accomplishing that. And he is the, the one he has predestinated. He justifies the one he, ju- or he calls. The one he calls, he justifies. The one he justifies, he glorifies. It's a, it's a beautiful portrait and picture. But, but it's one of those things that for some reason we just go, I don't like that. It violates our pride. It takes it completely out of my hands. I think most of it is, well, what about you know, all these other people? Well, there's lots of ways to talk about it, and we'll, do, we'll try to do justice to that when we study the doctrine. But the bottom line is, we have to defer to what God has said, even though we don't like it. There's parts of the Bible I don't like. But I have to say, Lord, you know, this really bugs me. I don't like the way this goes, but you know what? You know more than I do, so I'm going to defer to your judgment on this. Right? Uh, who am I? Who? Who? He says in Romans chapter 9, uh, who... You know, what what clay is going to stand up to the potter and say, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the shape you're making me in. What's the potter going to do? Potter, talk back to me, right? 
I mean, we, we, we don't understand who God is. We don't understand who we are. And we certainly don't understand what glorification is going to be one day. And if we could get our minds around those three things, a lot of these issues we have with Scripture would dissolve. If you understood what it's going to be like to be glorified and in His presence one day, and to be able... Listen, here's, here's the thing. This is a hard one because we think, well, I don't get this. You know, my extended family member that I love very much has not ever put their faith in Christ. Number one, we don't know what's going to happen. They may be part of the elect. It may be after your life's over and gone with it. They may come to the Lord. We don't know. We don't have, we have to go after everybody because we don't know who the elect are. We don't. We don't know who God's going to save. We don't know. And so we have to treat them all. We, we share the gospel because God's told us to, and we let him sort that out. He's, he's the one that's omniscient, right? So we do what we do because he's told us to, and we trust him. Now, the question comes up, well, what, how can I enjoy heaven if I, if I know my family member or, or somebody that means a lot to me, or anybody for that matter, is going to be suffering in a place called hell? We don't understand glorification. Glorification, being in the presence of God, being transformed, being made perfect, there's no way that we can comprehend what that's going to be like. But to be made perfect and to be finally in God's presence means that we are going to have this, this understanding and appreciation of God's attributes that we, don't, we can't even begin to have right now. That means we'll understand His glory, we'll understand His love, his grace that means salvation, but we'll also have equal appreciation for his justice that judges those who rebelled against him. We have to change the way we think about these things and, and appreciate the full picture that we can't do, the best we can do is speculate about it. But we can't sort all that out now. We, we have to say, this is what the Lord is telling us. He's unpacking this mystery for us. He's told us things. Some of it we just don't like to hear, but it's not for us to like it or not. It's for us to bow to Him and say, Lord, you know best, and, and it's going to be good. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be super. It's going to exalt your name, and that's ultimately what it's all about. And, and I'm so grateful that you sought me out and saved me. And it makes me want to worship you and adore you in ways that I never fathomed that I could or would want to. And it should, it should impassion me to want to share the gospel with everyone I see because I want them to experience the same thing. You know? Okay, I'm getting sidetracked here. The existence of God. Does God exist? We could just say yes and move on. Anybody got a problem with that? <laughs> okay. The existence of God. All people have a deep inner sense that God exists. We're his creatures. He's our creator. Romans 1, again, uh, several instances there in that passage of Scripture where Paul affirms this. Verse 21, Paul claims unbelieving Gentiles know who God is or they know God or that there is a God. They just don't honor him. They choose not to honor him. Romans 1.25, wicked unbelievers exchange the truth about God for a lie. So they, they have this understanding of what truth about God is, but they've decided to trade it in to swap it for a lie. They'd rather have the lie. 
Romans 1, 119 says, what can, we, well, what can be known is plain because God has shown it. Still, some people deny this inner sense of God. Who says there is no God? Fool. The fool. At least three times in the Old Testament, God says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. <coughs> Next time you hear an atheist say, don't believe in the existence of God, you don't have to tell them this to their face necessarily. I mean, you might. depends on the context, right? It depends on the nature of the discussion you may or may not be having. But the Bible certainly says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So he's, you, you have to... You have to mourn and be sorrowful even for the fool, I think. Believing the evidence in Scripture and nature. Believing the evidence in Scripture and nature. Genesis 1.1 and thereafter, first, second chapters of Genesis unpack for us emphatically what God has done to bring creation into being. Now, there it's no mistake, it's no... Um, it's not a coincidence that the critics of the Bible go after the first 11 chapters of Genesis the way they do. All right? Because in those chapters, we see this incredible, raw, organized, perfect power of God unleashed. We see Him in all His splendor there. Let there be light. There it is. Let there be anything. There was nothing. Scripture says, uses ex nihilo there in that chapter. It means to create out of nothing. He had to create the raw materials to create everything. You know, what? some of the things that strike me as so ironic in Scripture is that, you know, we human beings, we're pretty proud. You know, you see that all through Scripture too, right? It starts at the Tower of Babel. You know, you had, you had there right after Cain kills Abel, you have this increase of knowledge and technology taking place. You can read it. You know, Lamech was, uh, well, he's the grandson of Cain, and he's boasting about, you know, killing people and stuff because they crossed him and things. But they were forging all kinds of implements, and obviously technology was on the upswing. They were building cities, naming them after themselves. And, and you get to uh, 11, Chapter 11 over there where they start building this Tower of Babel. They're trying to formulate their own path to the heavens. And that was never God's plan. God's plan, if you read Scripture carefully, has always been to come and dwell among His people. God's plan is to come and dwell in the midst of His people. The tabernacle of God is with Him. They're building this tower trying to find where God's at. They're going to Him. We're going to take over. You know, it's, an, it's a mutiny because we've got all this ability. They had knowledge. They had knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, God just continues. And says one of the more funny things there. God said, let us go down and see what they're doing. <clears throat> Believing the evidence in Scripture. Genesis 1-1 gives us this emphatic description of all that God has done. We... We, how could you not believe in the existence of God? Looking at all of creation. Romans 1.20, God's eternal nature and deity is clear in creation. Man is the greatest evidence of God's character, the intricate design, the miraculous nature. Take, I mean, we elevate ourselves, and what did God do? God took the most basic thing in all of creation, dirt. Dirt. Dirt and a little bit of water. 
blew into it and created us. Lest we want to elevate ourselves, exalt ourselves, and make ourselves like God, right? God says, you're just dirt and water. Just dirt and water, that's all. Nothing special. Just basic raw materials of what creation is comprised of. And yet, the design clearly points to God's character, His miraculous uh, ability, His power. Acts 14, 17, natural elements such as rain, sunshine, fruit-bearing seasons give witness to God. They tell us there's a creator. I mean, we're right now making the turn toward fall. I heard somebody the other day moaning and groaning because their tomatoes are done for the year, right? Might have been yesterday at lunch. We were talking about tomato plants and stuff, and everybody goes, yeah. This is a short season. It was a short season. They didn't last long. Well, that's, you know, we're swinging down. Things going to go back down, and then they'll come back up. And again, it reminds us of this timing thing, this cycle, you know, of life and death and back again, and clearly points to uh, a validation of who God is and what God does. The life that God gives and the curse that's ours because of sin, that we must die. Psalm 19, 1 through 2 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. For those who are correctly evaluating the evidence, everything in Scripture and everything in nature proves clearly that God exists and He is the powerful and wise Creator that Scripture describes Him to be. When we believe that God exists, we base that belief not on blind hope, but on an overwhelming amount of reliable evidence from God's words and God's works. Okay. I'm not going to get all the way through it. Too much to go. I'll stop there. Question? Any question? Comments? We'll pick up with the knowability of God next week. And we will, I'm pretty confident, get through the communicable attributes as well. So, uh, through chapter 5. If you're reading. What's that? Oh, you guys just talking.